verses 38 through 44. Now there was an inscription above Christ there on the cross, a sign that says, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, Jesus, and saying, are you not the Christ and you claim to be the Savior? Save yourself and us. But the other, the other criminal was rebuking his fellow and said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And, addressing Jesus, this is not a thief. King James says thief on the cross. This is a general term for criminal in the original. And we know based on history, the Romans didn't kill thieves. They didn't crucify thieves, should say it that way. They reserved crucifixion for rebels against Roman authority. And after condemning the person after quote-unquote due process of law, they forced the guilty rebel against Roman authority. The Romans had occupied the region for 100 years. They forced the rebel to publicly submit to their authority before they killed him horribly. And how did they force the guilty rebel to publicly submit to Roman authority? By carrying the cross, their cross, from the place where they were judged to the place of execution. So when Christ says... Uh, to believers in Matthew 16, Peter, James, and John. If you want to follow after me, you've come to me in faith for the free gift. You want to follow after me, you got to deny yourself, your selfishness, take up your cross daily. That's not how you get saved. That's how you publicly submit to the authority of Christ you had formerly before you came to faith, rebelled against. So that's an apt expression. But here we have this second criminal looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And you talk about hard things to believe in the Bible. This may be the hardest thing for me to believe in the Bible. That this guy, after three, we're halfway through the six-hour crucifixion. This guy looks over at Jesus who's dying and daring to believe not only will he be resurrected and have a kingdom someday, he thinks that Jesus is the issue and issuer of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And that's what saving faith is. And he expresses that, and Jesus says, well, you know, if you talked to me a few months ago, you know, could have walked the aisle, signed the card, quit, started, joined something, come to prayer meeting. You know, remember when you come in your kingdom. What did this guy offer Jesus? He's got nothing to give. He's nailed to a cross. It wasn't like, I'll give you something, you give me everlasting life. He just throws himself on the mercy, recognizing who Jesus is. I'm a sinner, I can't fix it. You can't, even though you're dying there. And I want you to, because he believes he's going to be resurrected and set up the kingdom eventually. And look what the Lord says. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You don't have to wait for the millennial kingdom. You're going to be with, with me today in paradise. Now, it was about the sixth hour. We call that high noon today. And darkness at that point fell over the whole land area there for the next three hours for until 3 p.m. Okay. Uh, yeah, we're going to look at letter X in the life of Christ, A through Z. 26 letters, one Savior, four Gospels. And we're getting down to the nitty-gritty. I sent an email out to most of you saying that there is no more important topic than what we're going to look at today. And I tremble at the thought, I've got 45 minutes to try not to uh, confuse it or fuzz it up and, and, and fail to show the proper deference to it. There's nothing more important than what we're about to study here, uh, both what happened and why it happened. 
And so uh, let's go ahead, David, and let's pray we'll be teachable to God's Word this morning, as always. And uh, Kitty, we got uh, Jera and Daniel up there, and we kind of walked through all those folks last week, but the, that's our active military. So as we pray to be teachable to God's Word, let's pray for those who protect and serve us like uh, our active military and peace officers and firefighters, okay? And uh, Zane, would you pray for us in that direction? Usually at this point, we do like a top five list to kind of warm up your capacity for abstract thought. But this is such a, an overwhelmingly serious topic, not that, that, that they're not all serious. I wanted to, to do something else. And uh, this isn't funny. It's about a comic book, but it's not funny. And I, I want to make a point about the culture we're living in right now. Uh, in a new comic, in a new comic called Second Coming, written by Mark Russell, Jesus Christ will be portrayed as an out-of-touch former Savior who is cast out of his prison in heaven, who is cast out of his prison in heaven and back down to earth because God the Father felt that Jesus messed up his first visit. The book, the comic book, will feature Jesus living in an apartment with a superhero named Sun Man, S-U-N. You see him there on the, uh, the left, that would be Sun Man. Uh, the writer, Mark Russell, told pop culture website Bleeding Cool, haven't been there, the uh, concept is that God was so upset with Jesus' performance the first time he came to earth, because he was arrested so soon and crucified shortly after that, that he, God, has kept Jesus locked up since then. I'm not making this up. Um, you couldn't make it up. Uh, God notices Sun Man doing good things on earth and decides to send Jesus back to, quote-unquote, learn from the Superman. Uh, and they end up learning from each other. See, there's going to be wonderful lessons here that Mark Russell wants us to see, the author. They're going to end up learning from each other. They learn the limitations of each other's approach to the world and its problems. Uh, Russell also says that uh, Jesus was kept in a heavenly prison since his crucifixion, because God the Father was mad at him. God was so upset with the fact that he got crucified the last time that he wouldn't even let him look through the celestial keyhole at earth to keep up. Apparently, Russell's Jesus will have been totally unable to see what's been happening on earth the last 2,000 years and is shocked when he returns to earth and he sees what has been done in his name by Christianity the last 2,000 years. Uh now, let me, let me give you a real short commentary because I could go 45 minutes on that, uh, but I won't. Um, and you say, how is this possible? Watch this. I don't like it. I'm not exaggerating. Freedom of speech now is being interpreted to mean people are free to blaspheme Jesus Christ, to vilify Christianity, and to marginalize and soon probably criminalize Christians any way they like but at the same time, the same people, based on the culture, the courts, and Congress, defend the right of everybody else. I mean, from existential atheists to uh, ascetic Hindus, and everything in between except for us, uh, to do whatever they want to do. Even when what the, some of the stuff they're doing is wrong, absurd, immoral, and sometimes even illegal. So here we are. You know, it's okay for anybody to bash Jesus Christ uh, and Christianity and Christian at any time and uh, put us in our place, but it's not okay for anybody 
to bash anybody else, no matter, no matter what they want to do to babies or uh, to Christians or to anybody else. It's strange. But here's the thing. We do this all the time, even though, go back, go back a slide there, David. That's the comic book. I was going to say, now do it. Even though we all know you will never see a comic book like this. Am I right? Nobody's going to do that. Because the first law is, you can't say anything negative about any religion except Christianity. There's also a second reason nobody would do that. Why would nobody... I mean, a European newspaper had a editorial cartoon about the leader of that religion, and the next day the building got bombed. Methodists, Lutherans, Assembly of God people don't go bomb Mark Russell's house, uh, which is... A good thing. I don't think we should. But it's just the strange culture we live in today. So we cannot limit this to a third grade level. We're, we're playing hardball. The culture is playing hardball against what we believe, what we hold dear. Uh, we love our enemies. We pray for our enemies. We pray for those who despitefully use us. Pray for Mark Russell. But, uh, man, we cannot water this down to try to make ourselves look cool to the world because you're going to end up with total and complete nonsense. Am I right? Yeah, being a nonsense, I think I lost my notes, and that would be nonsense. Okay, next slide. Yeah, we're looking at the life of Christ A through Z, and we come to expiatory execution. There's a fudge factor. I know expiatory starts with an E, not an X. But uh, expiation is a word in theology. It means to wipe something clean, to wipe it clean. And Christ's death wipes the sin debt we owe God clean as we access it through faith alone in him like the terrorist on the cross just did. Uh, next slide. So, yeah, we're going to say expiatory execution, and we're going to focus on that. Uh, next slide, David. We're talking about real places, real people, real things. Uh, the northern part of that map is the region called Galilee. The southern part is called Judea. Uh, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and he ministered out of Capernaum. But he's in and out of Jerusalem, and now as we come to washing in wisdom the night before the crucifixion, the execution, the resurrection, the ascension, we're back in Jerusalem. So last week, last two weeks, really, we looked at the upper room discourse, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Today we're going to be expiatory execution. Uh, and I always put the two together. We're going to break them out separately. We'll look at the resurrection next week. But a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven but the resurrected one's the only one who can. So you can't have one without the other. And then Z is another fudge factor, zapped from Zion. Forty days after the resurrection, Christ ascends back to heaven. And actually the plan is to look at both the resurrection and the ascension next week, and we'll do a series of studies uh, looking at Islam and uh, modern-day Judaism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, just one week each, just a snapshot, okay? So anyway, our passage breaks down like this. We're going to look at the expiatory execution according to Dr. Luke. He was a medical doctor. And it's real simple. We've got a first phase and a final phase. So let's look at the first phase, verses 32 through 43. Look at verse 32. Uh, we're just getting right to the cross. We're, we're jumping over the, uh, the uh, arrest and the trials. There are multiple trials and even walking to the place of execution but in addition to Jesus here early uh, in April 3rd, 33 AD on a Friday, two others had been condemned. They were criminals. Now, the King James says thieves. 
but it's a general term in the original, and the original audience knew the Romans didn't crucify pickpockets or bank robbers. They crucified people they thought were terrorists, insurrectionists, rebels against Roman authority. They wanted law and order. They didn't want anybody rattling their chains. And if you did rattle the chains, they made it a point to torture and kill in the most excruciating way publicly to kind of slow down the enthusiasm for joining any group that would be anti-Rome. And it worked pretty well. As uh, the Passion of the Christ was going to have a final slide, which they eventually put on the cutting room floor, but it was going to say, uh, during the first century, the Romans crucified tens of thousands of people, but only one rose from the dead. We're not saved just because Jesus was crucified. A lot of people were crucified. In some areas, like in Afghanistan, they crucified Christians. Okay, We're not saved because Jesus was crucified. Hanging between heaven and earth, we're, we're saved because Christ paid the sin debt from noon to three. God the Father judged him for our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Okay, So let's work through this. Yeah, we've got two criminals. That's a better translation, but we know specifically these guys would have been rebels against Rome. And verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, Jesus, and the criminals, one on the right of Jesus, one on the left of Jesus. Let's look at the place of the skull. Now, when we go to Israel in May, we'll point out that uh, archaeologists are not sure if this is exactly where it happened or possibly another site. But I'll tell you my take on that in detail when we get to Israel. But this is just outside the uh, the uh, King's Gate in the city of Jerusalem. And it sure looks like a skull to me. There are the eye sockets, there's the nasal, you know, that's kind of the forehead and stuff like that. And I've said this before, but what nobody tells you, this is just, uh, what, 150 yards from the garden tomb. So here's what they don't tell you. When, when the Jews today in Israel interact with Muslim sites, they go out of their way to make them accessible, not to do anything anywhere near a Muslim site that would offend anybody. When, uh, when Muslims have access to our sites, go back one more time, go back to the one we had there for David. Uh, nobody shows you this, but the first time you go, you notice there's a mosque next to it, there's a Muslim graveyard on top of it, and there's a bus station in front of it. Are oh, you making it up? No, I'm not. Go to the next slide. <laughs> yeah, I took this picture, okay? There's the bus station. What's that? Minarets, that's a mosque. And I didn't get a good shot of the graveyard. Let's try one more time. Uh, you can kind of see it up there. But just for what it's worth, okay? I'm not saying we should uh, do anything violent in response to that, but it's hard not to notice little things like that. But that looks like a skull to me, and I, I think there are reasons to say that's the site, not the site under the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but you'll see both of them when we go to Israel. Okay, Now watch this. The, I noticed this time as I was doing some study, many of the commentators talk about the remarkable restraint in which Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John describe the physical crucifixion. I mean, I think the thing that surprised me when The Passion of the Christ, that movie came out, was so many Christians seemed to be amazed at how violent the crucifixion was. I mean, And not only that, just the beating before the crucifixion. They all seem so surprised by that. I mean, it's in your Bible. I mean, have we watered it down? Have we sanitized it so much? It's just something you wear around. It's just a piece of jewelry to you? I mean, come on, folks. Um, But the the gospel writers don't revel in the gore. They don't stress every minute picture of the torture. 
they knew their readers would understand what they were talking about. And also, hey, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about these events, but they're written a decade or two or three afterwards by the eyewitnesses. And they're looking at all this, Ken, through the, through the uh, lens of the resurrection, right? And that's, that's why I remember as a young kid who was a new Christian, uh, when I found out they called Friday before Easter Good Friday, and I was, uh, I was uh, thinking about the pain and the torture of crucifixion. How could you call that good? But I, theologically, it's the best thing. If God can actually redeem crosses to make them ultimate good, he can use all things together for good. Not everything's good, and we're not supposed to like evil or rejoice in it. And there's nothing I'm going to say is going to make you feel good about a tragedy. But ultimately, God knits all that together in this mosaic of your life that when you look at it from a distance, you say, oh, all those pieces make sense. And we may not be able to see how they fit at all till we get to heaven, but we will see that, I'm quite sure. So at the place of the skull, the writers are describing the way it looks, but being very reserved and very restrained. Uh, and we see the first thing Jesus does is rather than snapping his fingers and starting the universe over, which he's capable of doing, he prays grace on the execution squad. He says to the Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. In my humble opinion, this must be a special category. When you're crucifying the Creator, uh, just by definition, you ought to drop dead of a brain aneurysm. And Jesus saying, give them a stay of execution. These guys are just soldiers trying to do the best they can, as it were. We'll, we'll find out about that in heaven. But notice this. Uh, just like Psalm 22, written in 1000 BC, described uh, they're taunting him and they're dividing up his outer garment, which would have been valuable, by casting lots. Now that sounds like you're going with the shortest straw. Next next slide. Actually, the description there uh, is very generic, and they probably use dice. Now these are first century Roman dice made out of bones. And those are the very ones, those, no, they're not the very ones they use. We don't know what they were using, but they could have been doing something like that. Which doesn't make dice inherently evil. Playing guards aren't inherently evil. DVDs aren't inherently evil. Baseball bats, guns aren't inherently evil. They're neutral. Stuff's neutral. It depends on kind of how you use them and where you use them and when you use them, right? Now watch this. So they're dividing up the garments, and that's important because a thousand years ago, David said the Messiah would be in that situation. And then we see the the people that are watching this. The people, the crowd, just the locals stood by looking on. It's kind of like impossible not to look at. And they may have been somewhat desensitized because they've seen this happen before. And even the rulers, now who are we talking about? The governor, the president, Caesar? I'm talking about the religious leaders, the guys that framed Jesus before the Romans. They didn't have the power of execution, the religious leaders, but the Romans did. And they totally set him up, and Pontius Pilate knew they were they were framing him, but he just went along with it because it'd be easier expedience for him. And even the religious rulers were sneering at him, saying he saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Why are the religious leaders here? Don't they have something better to do? Uh, I think they're there because they want to make 100% certain this guy is out of here. They don't want to have any chances. Now, interestingly enough, uh, and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks when we talk about Islam, according to the Quran, Isa, that's the Arabic name for Jesus, was a Muslim prophet who predicted the coming of Muhammad, but the apostles changed that when they wrote the New Testament, so you won't find out about it there. 
And because Allah would never let a great exalted prophet like Isa, the greatest prophet of all time except for Muhammad, die such a horrible death, although those dirty Jews condemned him, and the Romans were too dumb not to see through it completely, they were complicit in it, complicit in it, uh, somewhere between Pontius Pilate and Golgotha, the place of the skull, somebody who looked a lot like Jesus was mistaken for Jesus, and Jesus got to go hide and get away. And somebody, probably Judas is the assumption, who looked so much like Jesus, the Romans didn't know any better. But among other reasons to rejoice that reject that theory is the religious leaders are watching this, and they would have known the difference between the, you know, the Romans might think all Jews look alike, you know, that old stereotypical, stereotypical thing they'll get you in trouble nowadays. All Jews look alike, all blacks look alike, all white people look alike, all, all old men look alike, you know. Um, it's weird, you get older and you realize you, you can walk, even with some of these college students that you're teaching, you've got their whole lives in their hands. You can walk into a, in a social situation, they don't even see you. If you're over 30, they don't even see you, you're invisible. It's crazy, you know. But, uh, yeah, these religious leaders are there to make sure that Jesus is killed as painfully as possible. And if Judas had been up there, they say, hey, big boy, stop. Stop the presses. We've got to go find him. So, you know, all these things are not just incidental. They actually help us. And so, you know, and also I think they're wanting just to kind of pile on. There used to be a penalty in football. What was it? Uh, roughness, unnecessary roughness. And they, I think they call it something else now. But when they had that uh, excessive celebration, the first year they were doing excessive celebration, Debbie didn't understand that. But based, she combined unnecessary roughness with excessive celebration. And when OSU made a touchdown, which doesn't happen that often, so we were, he said, she said, and a penalty was, was thrown. She said, was that unnecessary celebration? Not excessive celebration, unnecessary celebration. Well, it was necessary. We actually scored some points, but. Um, they're here to dance on his grave. They're, they're here just to make sure he goes down and he's killed and they can show everybody in the community, see, we won, he lost. Don't listen to him. It's that bad. Uh, some of these details were so familiar to us, we don't think through them, but when you look at that, you go, yeah, that's probably what's going on. Uh, 36, 37, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offer him sour wine because you get so dried out you can't speak. So they want them to gasp and make noises to just to express how terrible this is, because they're showing this is a visual aid to the local population. This is what happens to you if you buck our authority. So don't you dare not pay the tribute taxes and pay our cover our packs a mile like you're supposed to. What Jesus say? If a Roman soldier impresses you to carry his pack a mile, which they had to do under law, what should you do? Throw it down after after a mile? It says go two miles. Don't take it all the way back home and leave your family, but do more than you're expected, just out of grace, you know? even if you don't like the Romans, and nobody did at the time, right? Soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering sour wine so he can groan more, and they can kind of show off how painful this is to the population watching and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, Jesus is the second person of the ontological trinity. He could stop the universe with cause at that point. He could vaporize those guys but he does what nobody else would do. When George Washington finally won the Revolutionary War and George III in England found out that he voluntarily, George Washington voluntarily stepped down and gave control of the government to the Continental Congress when we got the Articles of Confederation and eventually the Constitution, George III said, that is the greatest man in the world. Nobody else in history had so much power, so much clout, and walked away. 
Uh, yeah, one other person. Jesus Christ here. He could start over. He could zap this, uh, but he doesn't save himself, does he? But yeah, he kind of does. One person's going to get saved here. And this guy's going to be saved not because he walked an aisle or promised to quit smoking or stopped doing something or uh, started doing outcome to prayer meeting and all this kind of stuff. As because, as Romans says, but to the one who does not work but who believes in Christ who justifies the ungodly, you got to be ungodly to be savable here. That's okay, you qualify. But to the one who doesn't work but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. The leper who can't fix himself, says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. What does Jesus say? Be cleansed. <laughs> That's all I want. Active, receptive trust, you got it. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, right? Uh, but first, let's go to the next slide. Look at verse 38. Uh, notice the uh, the sign over the cross is in Greek, uh, Latin, and Hebrew. So everybody could read it. It's a metropolitan crossroads just outside the city limits there. And also, it speaks to the uh, the huge, uh, not just the audience that would see this, but also to the power of the cross to save despite color, country, culture, language kind of thing. But go to the next slide. You know, you talk to people sometimes, and they'll say, I don't believe the Bible is full of contradictions. And if you say, okay, well, what's your favorite one? I mean, I've done this, I've done this 100 times. And about 95% of the time they say, well, I don't know any, but somebody, I, I took physics at college and they to, told me they were, you know. So I said, okay. Uh, about five times people said the inscription over the cross, and here's how this one goes. Can't trust that New Testament. Can't trust that Old Testament. Betty, you can't trust it because they can't even get simple, objective things like what? Like the inscription over the cross, Carol. Do you realize Matthew, Mark, Luke, John have four different versions? They have, they have four different versions. They can't even get that right. How could you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, you know what? They're right, but they're wrong. You've got four different, partial, easily harmonized, accurate descriptions. What did Luke say? The description says, this is the king of the Jews. What does Matthew say? This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. What does Mark say? The king of the Jews. What does John say? Jesus, the Nazarene King of the Jews. Um, J. Warner Wallace is a is a uh, cold case homicide detective in Los Angeles County. He went from being an atheist to a Christian about 20 years ago after reading the Gospels, wanting to disprove them, and realizing because of data like this, this is the kind of testimony you get from four eyewitnesses to a murder that are reliable. They're not going to give you verbatim. They'll give you accurate partial accounts, and it's Easily harmonized, right? Uh, now, if any of the four Gospels said, this guy is George from Greece, the prince of the Gentiles, then we'd have a problem. That would that would be a problem. That would be a contradiction. Different isn't necessarily divergent, Connie. So what do you think, uh, David hit the button. What do you think the sign said in its entirety? This is Jesus, the Nazarene king of the Jews. By the way, Matthew tells us that both criminals made fun of Jesus. From 9 until just about noon, both criminals. And then at some point, just before noon, the one turns and seeing the dignity, the clear righteousness, the grace, the mercy, the love, the strength of Jesus Christ hanging, dying on a cross. He says, don't you put him down. And I think he's literally offended at his friend and saying, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. I totally believe you the Messiah. 
I totally believe you're going to beat death and come out the other side, and I want to be there with you. Active receptive trust. I can't. I'm 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 messed up. It's not just my mom's fault. Not just Pastor Brad's fault or, the, or President Trump's fault. It's my my fault. I can't fix it. I want you to. And Jesus says you got it. It has to be all of grace, not of any of your merit, to be saved like that. Do you believe in deathbed conversions? Jesus does. I mean, I would say that should count for something. Next slide. Yeah, now watch this. It's funny, when you look at this, and I tried to look at all the commentaries I could after I was done this week to see what they said about the saving faith of this guy that Jesus clearly affirms, you know, today you'll be with me. And by the way, based on the syntax, this can't be, I tell you today, today I'm saying this, just so you won't think it's tomorrow. By the way, we won't be alive tomorrow, but I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now the syntax means, I'm telling you something. Today, you you will be with me in paradise today. That's what he's saying, okay? So sometimes people want to move the, uh, uh, let's eat grandma. You know, if you move the, the comma, let's eat grandma, you can go, hey, let's eat grandma. She's just finished lunch. You're going to eat grandma. If you're a cannibal, let's eat grandma. The same words can mean, watch out, grandma. You know, so you know, those commas can make you or break you. But he's not saying, I'm telling you today something that might happen a thousand years. I'm telling you, you will be with me today in paradise. But I was going to say, the commentators say very little about that, the ultimate example of saving faith. Instead, they talk about paradise. Well, that goes to a Persian word that means garden and all this stuff. So I read about 27 people told me this was originally a Persian word that meant garden. And boy, I got a lot of that, a lot out of that. Uh, but here's the problem. And that, that's more than you want to think about. So hit the next button. Let's simplify that. For those of us living on this side of the cross, we are told, for us, physical death is to be absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord. Now, the elements of that body, whether you're blown up, cremated, eaten by cannibals, uh, or buried, all those atoms, God will put them back together and create a resurrection body for you at the beginning of the end times. But your consciousness leaves your body, and they bury or do whatever they do to the body, and you've got to be with the Lord. And since the ascension, the Lord has been in what I call heaven too. There's actually three heavens. I know it's more than you want to think about, but watch this. Got to be. How do I know that? Because Jesus tells the terrorist on the cross, who would have broken all ten commandments, he would have been an adulterer, he would have been a murderer, he would have done all these things, okay? He told him, you're going to be with me in paradise today. That's Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, if Dr. Honer's chronology is correct. Three days later, on the day of the resurrection, the first woman, the first person to see Jesus resurrected is Mary, right, Magdalene? And she does what any woman would do for her friend who has been, she thought was dead and now is alive. She grabs hold of him and won't let go because she's not, she's going to take care of him. And King James says, touch me not, I've not yet ascended to my Father in heaven. But the Greek just says, stop clinging to me. Okay, Mary, it's great. We've hugged. It's real. I'm really here. But let go. I've only got 40 days to do my things before I ascend. But he says, let go of me, tells her because I have not yet ascended to my Father in heaven. So watch this, Julie, where we're going to go, where Jesus ascended to when we die, is not where Jesus and the terrorists on the cross went. Because he tells Mary, Sharon, on the day of resurrection, I haven't ascended to, to my Father yet. So where did they go? Next slide. Here's the thing. This is interesting. When you look at all the details, it works, but everybody wants a five-second answer, and sometimes it takes five minutes. You know, when you talk about the Old Testament, we were talking about us on this side. Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, everybody who dies goes to a place called Sheol. 
It's spiritually translated. What is all that? Well, she has a big place. It's got at least three compartments, two for human beings. And in Luke 16, Jesus talks about the rich man who wasn't a believer and Lazarus, who had all kinds of physical problems, uh, in, a, in Sheol. And Lazarus is in a place in Sheol called Paradise, or Abraham's bosom. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are there, right? Uh, there's a great gulf fix, and then the, the rich man is down here. Russell told in Jude and Second Peter, we studied those books last year, remember? That a certain category of demons are in a place called Tartarus as part of the Sheol complex, we'll call it. Now, we're told Sheol's in the heart of the earth. That may be literal. Well, they've shot waves down there and nobody picked up anything. It's spiritual, so the waves aren't going to pick it up. But more likely it's uh, figurative because in Psalm 139, David says when he was in utero, he was, as it were, in the center of the earth. The center of the earth is a figure of speech for a mysterious, inaccessible place. So Sheol is in a mysterious, inaccessible place. When Jesus dies, they bury his body, and he goes to paradise, right? And Terrence on the cross dies, and his soul goes to paradise. Next slide. So what happened to the folks in paradise after Jesus ascends to heaven? They all got promoted. Uh, being a Southern Baptist growing up, it didn't bother me a bit. You know, I'm getting over it, but it's, it's all good. Uh, they made a big deal about promotion every year. You know, every year you go to, and you literally we'd go upstairs. You know, every time you got promoted, you went upstairs to a higher level in the building. You know, which I think they did that on purpose. But uh, it, was, it was fun. You know, so you look forward to promotion. Well, there are, are references uh, in Ephesians. That in other places that say when Jesus ascended, he took a host of people with him. I think after Jesus formally returns to heaven too, let's call that heaven one. That's called the abode of God, heaven two. That's from where Jesus came. That's where he went back at the ascension, not the resurrection. 40 days later ascension. Heaven then formally accepts, commends, certifies as it were, the saving work of Christ in all his totality and then those who believed in the promised Savior are promoted right along with him. And from that point on, absent from the body, face to face with the Lord there. So I said heaven, there's three heavens, right? Heaven one would be paradise or Abraham's presence for Old Testament believers until the ascension. In the very presence of God, the Father, where he visibly manifests his presence, where Jesus came from. Uh, heaven two, what's heaven three? Go to the next slide, David. It's the whole new universe that's coming after the second coming. We'll have a thousand years on earth and things will happen. Then we get a whole new universe, new heaven, new earth. That's heaven three. Next slide. That was a whole lot of theology in five minutes, folks, but uh, you, you survived. It's good. If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. We shouldn't say that. Nietzsche said that, and he technically wasn't a Christian, you know. Uh, he's not that great of a source, actually. But, yeah, let's go to the next slide if I can find that. Uh, yeah, go back, David. I'm, I'm, I'm in a boo-boo there. Uh, yeah, the final phase. Let's talk about the final phase. Look at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. We call that high noon. And darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. That mean the whole earth. And King James might have said whole earth. Uh, that word uh, just refers to the area right around Jerusalem there. Uh, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple at the end of that three-hour period was torn until the, the veil represented sin that separated the holy place in the temple from the holy of holies where the, the reality of God was manifested. The whole point of the temple system and the sacrifices and the veil was to say because of the sin 
there had to be sacrifices made that anticipated the coming of the final sacrifice, Jesus paying for the cross, for the sins of the world on the cross. And as soon as that is finished at the end of that three hours from noon to three, God rips that veil. And I bet that was a shocker for the priests. And it wasn't from the bottom to top, it's from top to bottom. It was somebody saying, hey, that we're not going to need any temples anymore. We're now temples of the Holy Spirit. It's awesome stuff. Now between that noon and three, we've got the substitutionary atoning sacrifice taking place. Now let's go to that next slide, David. So this is kind of my, I need to get Anthony or Jonathan to fix my, this is kind of my basic, this is what my graphic design looks like. I don't have great skills there. But yeah, I mean, the crucifixion starts at nine. Both of them are taunting Jesus until around here when the one guy comes to his senses by God's grace, rebukes his fellow, expresses saving faith, and then shortly after that, that's where the atonement takes place. That's where he bears our sins. God the Father judges God the Son as our substitute. Everything needed to get you to heaven, Jesus Christ died and paid for. Let me ask you a question. How many of your sins were future when Jesus died in 33 AD? All of them? How about one you'll do next week? Yeah, that's true, right? And how many are forgiven when you receive him? All, all the ones he died for, which is all of them. That's very important. Uh, next slide. That's my representation of darkness for three hours. I, I, I made that up all by myself. And then next, yeah, just to emphasize that, it's not just the fact Jesus was crucified. It's the fact that hanging on the cross for three hours, he bore our sins. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us from noon to three on 30, April 3rd, 33 AD of Dr. Honer's chronology is right. Okay, just to save some time, let me cut to the chase. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are telling you what this looked like. Scripture in Old Testament and New Testament form gives us elaborate commentary on what this thing means. And let's look at a few passages that will let us see that. But I want to go to and go to John 1. Anybody got a hymn book under your, in front of your chair there? Yeah, I meant to bring one up there. I mean, there was, and we had some great songs today, right on the theme. But look at, uh, and you know, I'll read it to you. The old rugged cross. Let's read about the old rugged cross based on what happens on the cross. These, these things are classic. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame and rebellion against Rome. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. On that old rugged cross so despised by the world, then and now, has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God, the sacrificial animal, the Lamb, Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice, left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. In the old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see, for twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. To the old rugged cross I will ever be true as a believer. Now its shame and reproach gladly bear. Let's not turn Jesus into our personal success coach, cool dude, uh, uh, social reformer. He's so much more than any of those things. And he's not even that cool, really, if you think about it. Um, in, he, using human categories. In fact, Isaiah says he, he won't look attractive. He just looks like an average person. He doesn't stand out from a crowd, in a crowd. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away where his glory forever I'll share. So the chorus says for all four verses, I'll cherish the old rugged cross, not the wood, 
But what happened on the cross, the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, till my trophies, all those softball trophies gathering dust in the, I'll show them to you sometime. They're in the attic. We got a bunch of them. You know, we want a bunch of trophies. And then you think, that seems so important at the time, you know? Um, and I'm taking them with me when I leave, by the way, Dale. So, I'm going to build the Dale Corbin Museum somewhere. Um, till my trophies at last I lay down, I'll cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Now let's go to 251. This is an oldie but goodie. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was wounded for my transgressions and yours. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's direct King James from 1 Peter 2. For our guilt, he gave us peace. For our bondage, gave release. And with his stripes, with his stripes, everything involved in the violence leading up to and climaxing with the cross and the atonement, we are healed. He was numbered among transgressors on either side of murderers, and terrorists, we did esteem him forsaken by his God, just humanity generally. As our sacrifice, he died, that the law be satisfied and all our sin, all our sin, all our sin was laid on him. He had wondered, uh, we had wondered, we all had wondered, far from the fold of the shepherd of the sheep, but he sought us where we were, on the mountains bleak and bare, and brought us home, brought us home, brought us safely home to God. Who can number his generation? Who shall declare all the triumphs of the cross? Every color, country, culture, denomination, generation who trusts in Christ alone has the blessed gift of eternal life. It's not something we do for God. It's something he does for us. Millions dead now live again. Myriads follow in his train. Victorious Lord, victorious Lord, victorious Lord, and coming King. John chapter 1. This should sound familiar. It's letter F. In the A through Z system, John the Baptist, he wasn't a Baptist. He was a baptizing Jewish prophet, saw Jesus coming and said, that's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world by his atoning sacrifice on the cross. Drop down a few verses, 135 and 36. The next day, John, the baptizing Jewish prophet, was standing with two of his disciples. They just happened to be Andrew and John, as it turns out, John the Apostle. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, that's the Lamb of God. What did he say about him the day before? He's going to take away the sin of the world. One of the two, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, immediately found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. We found the Christ. We found the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. Christ is not his last name. It's one of his most important titles. It means Savior, right? Now that's New Testament. Let's go to the Old Testament, Peg. Let's go to Isaiah 53. We'll, we'll see the Dead Sea Scrolls at a museum called the Shrine of the Book. And uh, we know all this stuff was written before the coming of Jesus because we've got copies of Isaiah, carbon dated 150 B.C., although the original would have been written about 700 B.C. And this is written in prophetic perfect or past because it's so certain it's going to happen. But realize this is a prophecy about Jesus and the cross. He was despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face. Many people went to that movie and didn't want to look at it and were closing their eyes and stuff like that because the, the whipping, much less the crucifixion, was so horrible. Uh, we did not esteem him, just generally, humanly speaking. Yet surely our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. In other words, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, the punishment, the, the payment for our well-being fell upon him. That's substitutionary atoning sacrifice. 
and by his wounds we are healed spiritually, like forever. You'll, you'll survive death, blessedly, if you trust Jesus Christ. That's what that means. All we, he's the lamb, we're the sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We break our own standards at our worst, much less God's. But the Lord, God the Father, the author of the plan, caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. It's becoming real popular among uh, evangelicals that are cool and draw a crowd to say that substitutionary atoning sacrifice, that's too grisly. That's cause, cosmic child abuse. We, we believe the cross about Jesus being a victor, being a, 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 a virtuous martyr, and showing you how terrible uh, the man is and, 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 and powers that be are. You've just degutted the whole gospel. You believe in Christ as Savior because you believe he died to pay your sin debt. That's why he's the Savior, not because he showed you what a virtuous martyr looks like. We've had thousands, if not millions, of virtuous martyrs in human history. Goodness gracious, man. We're going to be so cool, we're going to jet, jettison the whole thing. Like a lamb led to a slaughter, like a sheep at sunk before shear, he did not open his mouth. He could have snapped his fingers and started the whole universe over. What does he say about it? Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and ultimately give his life a ransom, a payment. When you ransom somebody from a kidnapping, you make the payment necessary for their freedom. That's what happens on the cross. He also says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. First John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only of the whole world. Expiation means to wipe clean. Propitiation means the satisfaction of righteous wrath by a sacrifice, payment, or offering. You'd be surprised what uh, some theologians today are doing to get around that meaning because they think it's uh, too too violent, too first century. Uh, but what is? And, and John's the only one who says it, right? No, actually, Paul says it too. Look at Romans three. Uh, you're not going to be able to save yourself even by trying to keep the laws God did give as opposed to living in Thailand trying to be a good Thai. By the works of the law, nobody can be justified in God's sight because we can't keep the law. But the law tells us we're sinners. We have become convicted of our sin. But now apart from trying to keep the law to save yourself, the righteousness of God has been manifested consistent with the Old Testament law and prophets. We're talking about the righteousness of God as your legal standing in God's sight through faith, not by your works, in Jesus Christ, who died to pay your sin debt and rose again, for all who believe, including the thief on the cross. And he wasn't a thief, he was a terrorist and a murderer. Old people, young people, white people, black people, rich people, poor people, um, all colors, country and colors, for all who believe. For there's no distinction, we've all sinned, we all need this thing, but sinners who believe are justified before God, declared righteous legally as a gift, if I buy uh, Mike a $500 Callaway driver and give it to him as a gift to my dear friend and next week send him a bill for $510, $10 for handling, that's not a gift. That's a sale. And, if they, and even if I send him a bill for $50, that's a whale of a good deal, but it's not a gift at that point if you're paying for it. You don't pay for gifts. Grace means unmerited favor. All those sinners that believe in Jesus for salvation based on who he is and what he did, meaning he paid your sin debt, you're daring to believe if he did that, that can save you, and if it doesn't work, you're not going to be, be saved. Uh, you're trusting him alone. Uh, through redemption, which is Christ Jesus, whom God the Father displayed publicly as a propitiation, helasterion, satisfaction of righteous wrath by payment, sacrifice, or an offering. In his blood, we're not saved by the red blood, 
corpuscles we're saved by his bloody, violent, substitutionary atoning sacrifice on the cross. We're saved by the cross. We're saved by the blood. We're saved by the death of Christ. Which one is it? All three ways to describe the same thing. The blood doesn't refer to the blood cells. It refers to the bloody event that happened on the cross where he bore our sins. The cross doesn't save us. The wood doesn't save us. What happened on the cross? Right? Don't be confused by that. Where then is boasting? People who are saved based on him doing all the work, we have nothing to brag about. The only person that gets any praise is, is the Savior. It's excluded. By what kind of standard of works? Are we saved by works and we're not bragging about our works? No. Through faith, where we're depending on what he did for us to save us. We maintain that a sinful person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And we could go on. But, uh, yeah, right, right, that's where we need to be. David, that's the gospel, by the way. We'll talk about this next week when we talk about the resurrection. First Corinthians 15 is called the resurrection chapter, Phil. It's all about the resurrection. And he starts by saying at the end of a long book, chapter 15, he says, let me go back to the very first thing I did when I came to Corinth the first time. Let me remind you what we believe. Unless you believed in vain, meaning Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. He's going to say, if we believe that, this is worthless. But he did rise from the dead. And the gospel according to 1 Corinthians 15 is the fact that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. The death and the resurrection, the death as paying our sin debt in our place. And then we're daring to trust him for that. That's not easy believism. Do you realize what you're believing here? Now, us preachers, we know all the stuff that's supposed to come after that. So we like to front load the reception with a bunch of the stuff that's supposed to be fruit or root or, or uh, effect. And it fuzzes it up. And people walk in the aisle and think they're saved. They sign a card, think they're saved. Then they come to me 40 years later and say, I walk in the aisle, sign the card, I'm not sure I'm saved. Well, what did you do? I walked in, I'll sign a card. Well, you're not saved. Sure, okay. But we can talk about that. It's not too late, you know, kind of thing. But uh, good night. Okay. Next slide there, David. Yeah, that's very important. We're going to emphasize the resurrection. Uh, we put an arrow, you know, by our, our uh, I guess you have to look on the back wall there, the cross and the arrow. Apart from uh, the resurrection, the cross has no saving power, but the resurrection validates the saving power of the death. There's only one person who has been resurrected from the dead, and that's Jesus Christ. All right, one more slide and we're done. Um, let me just say this, and this is going to be brief. There are 7.5 billion, with a B, a thousand million people on planet Earth today. And everybody's individual and unique. They have different fingerprints. They're all special. But there's really only two kinds of people, really, those who have trusted Christ alone for salvation and those who are trusting nothing and just in denial and when you die, nothing happens, it doesn't matter, nobody can know, are trusting in themselves to be really good people and, and they think that God lets good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. But where does he draw the line? Are you sure you're good enough? That's the eternal insecurity, plus it could never work. Otherwise, Christ died needlessly. There are a lot of people who think Jesus did something that helps them earn their own salvation, and they've never really trusted him alone. They think that he does something or has done something that makes them savable, but they've got to do the right things and jump through the hoops and all this good stuff. Uh, if you've got a one, uh, if you've got a mile span between two peaks and a mile drop, a mile across and a mile down, and somebody builds a bridge halfway across, can you jump the other half? Let's say it's 90%. You can't. You can't do it, right? Let me end with a uh, 
an illustration of saving faith, okay? Uh, this is in the Old West, and a guy uh, who worked in a circus but lost his job but was a tightrope walker came to a similar thing like that. There's, 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 there's a big gulch by two peaks, and here's the city over here. And he shot the arrow with a little thread over there, and he got harder, thicker and thicker thread, and eventually got a cable across there. And he said, tomorrow I'm going to walk across that cable. And the whole town comes out, comes out to see it. He says, I'm going to walk across that table, that cable, uh, right now. How many believe I can do it? And some people said, yeah, maybe, 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 maybe not. And he said, to make it harder, I'm going to push a wheelbarrow full of bricks, 250 pounds of bricks. Think I can do it? Most of them said, no, I don't think you can do it. And it's nice knowing you, you know. He gets up there slowly and very carefully, pushing the wheelbarrow full of bricks. He goes all the way across. Great applause, but now the hard part, he's going to come back. He does it, okay? He said, now, let me illustrate what saving faith is. Get the bricks out. How many of you believe I can push you across? That's the difference between believing that and believing in. I believe that's a good share, but I'm not trusting in that share until right now. I'm totally depending on that share to hold me up, right? That's saving faith, okay? It's not just mental assent. It's full consent of the will. Right now, you're in one of those two categories. If you've trusted Christ alone, Congratulations. Uh, this is uh, God's grace working in your life. Now we're called to live for the one who died for us. For one reason you come to church, right? But if you've been trusting nothing or yourself or maybe Jesus part way a little bit or thought nice things about him, today can be your day of salvation. Get in the wheelbarrow. Let him push your cross, okay? There to believe that uh, he is your savior. He's done what's necessary. And like the thief on the cross, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, it's just impossible to really conceive of just how great this is. But I pray you'd help us to have a clearer and a more profound conception of the work and the love and the grace that you and the Spirit and the Son have incorporated in your purpose and plan of salvation, and especially the wondrous cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.